choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 321 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Splashdown. The golf world went bananas today when it heard Alan Shepard was using a six iron on the moon. Golf Magazine quickly made Shepard an honorary member of its All-American team. United Press International countered by assigning one of its sports reporters to handle the story. The Associated Press then dispatched a reporter to interview Shepard's golf pro at Houston's River Oak Country Club. And before the day was out, the world had been informed about Shepard's handicap, his backswing, what Arnold Palmer thought, what Sam McDowell thought, what Gino Capaletti thought, whether Shepard had replaced his divot, and even the name of the company which made the six-iron clubhead. The trip home from the moon was unusually quiet. Each of the astronauts contemplating what had just happened to them and what it meant. Then exhaustion stuck, and they slept. By the next day, the three men were still recovering from the grueling day before. Now the quiet time of the mission had arrived, three days with little to do but keep the spacecraft operating and catch up on sleep. The Apollo 14 astronauts tonight are heading toward their Tuesday splashdown in the Pacific, and except for a minor mid-course correction, it appears to be a perfect flight back to Earth. David Schumacher reports. Like many other Saturday golfers, the astronauts slept late this morning, and moonwalkers Shepard and Mitchell slept an hour longer than Stuart Rusa. Mission Control then read them the Sunday papers with heavy emphasis on sports results, new inventions, and features. NASA says the astronauts received the kind of news they want to hear, and apparently that does not include the war in Asia, politics in Washington, or dissent anywhere. Early this afternoon, the astronauts made a minor course change, just a half mile an hour. In the past, they wouldn't have bothered, but there's a savings in fuel making changes now farther away from Earth and later. And Apollo 14 has been just a little short of fuel ever since the docking problem a week ago. Tonight, the astronauts perform what are listed as four scientific experiments, but demonstrations might be the better word. NASA would like to convince the general public of the practical value of spaceflight, and so the demonstrations will prove how much better liquids separate or crystallize in zero gravity. They do, and it would be helpful in certain chemical processes, for instance, making vaccines, but the cost is still prohibitive. David Schumacher, CBS News, Space Headquarters, New York. Now the pressure was off for everyone, except Mitchell. Halfway home, he curled up inside his sleeping bag and again pulled out the flashlight Rusa had noticed a week earlier. It was time for more ESP experiments. Then, as Mitchell's journey continued, something unexpected happened. It began simply enough as Mitchell observed through the command module's window the cloud-covered crescent earth 
casting its light in the blackness. By now, it was a familiar sight. But every once in a while, Mitchell stopped to look at it. Gradually, as he worked and glanced at the bright crescent, he was filled with a quiet euphoria, great tranquility, and an overpowering sense of understanding. It was as if he had suddenly begun to hear a new language, one being spoken by the universe itself. No longer did the earth or anything in the universe seem to be random. There was a sense of order, of worlds and stars and galaxies moving in harmony. In one moment, he was a detached observer. In the next, he could see that he was definitely a part of it all. As he worked within the command module, he had a sense of being outside himself, as if someone else's hands, way down there, were turning knobs and flipping switches. He found himself glancing over at Shepard and Rusa, looking for some glimmer in their eyes, some sign that they were sharing any part of this awakening. But they seemed the same as they had always been. So Mitchell said nothing. Several times during the trip home, the feeling returned, triggered each time by the sight of earth. Mitchell knew he had been enlightened, but in a way he did not understand, and with an impact that even now he did not fully sense. In time, it would overshadow even walking on the moon. In it, Mitchell would try to find the seeds of resolution he had longed for all his life. He did not guess as Kitty Hawk coasted toward Earth that Stu Rusa and even Al Shepard had tasted their own moments of personal discovery in ways they would never talk about, at least not to each other. This quiet little crew had that in common. The Apollo 14 astronauts are still on their way home, cleaning up their spacecraft with a vacuum cleaner and tying down things in the cabin to keep them from banging around on re-entry. Stuart Rusa, who is in the Air Force, left the knot tying to Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell, who are naval officers, and Rusa said he was glad to be flying with a couple of sailors. Things are going so quietly and smoothly that NASA arranged a press conference between Earth and space, which shows that wherever man goes in the universe, the press agent can't be far behind. For Al and Ed, Cone Crater was your major objective on your second moonwalk. You almost made the rim. How close do you think you got? And do you believe you collected enough rocks and samples to accomplish the purpose of your mission? I think so. Let me take the first part of it with respect to how close we got. I think we were within uh, perhaps 100 yards, more or less, of the ramp. And uh, certainly in a boulder field uh, that was right there associated with the boulders and the ramp. I agree with Al. I agree with Al. I think we were within 100, 150 yards. Uh, I think the majority of the type rocks we would find at the rim were in the boulder field that we were working. And uh, although it was a disappointment, just as a matter of challenge not to get up there, I think we accomplished the scientific objectives that we went for. 
So that was part of the world's first Earth-Space press conference, but not, we suspect, the last one. Apollo 14 hits the atmosphere of the Earth tomorrow afternoon, and the spacecraft is supposed to come down in the Pacific Ocean near Samoa. NBC News will, of course, cover the splashdown live on radio and television, beginning at 3.30 in the afternoon Eastern Time, 2.30 Central. Back on the home front, Shepard's wife, Louise, had watched her husband's lunar landing on television with a crowd of family and friends around her. When he landed on the moon, Louise burst out laughing and then immediately broke into tears and said, Good, good, they made it. Louise had long nursed an I told you so attitude toward those who hinted that her husband might be too old for the space game. There had been many references to his age in the press that had upset her, and she tried to defend him at every opportunity. It takes a pretty remarkable person to do it as far as I'm concerned, she told the Washington Star. And she told the Washington Post, he won't take second best. During the three days of Shepard's tension-filled, problematic traverse to the moon, his 33 hours on the surface, and his three-day return, Louise had visited Mission Control a few times to listen to radio transmissions from her faraway husband. Once she ran into William House, the doctor who had performed the surgery on Shepard's ear, whom Shepard had invited to the launch and to mission control. NASA flight controllers gave House a headset so he could speak to Shepard. I'm talking to you through the ear that you operated on, Shepard had told House. Questions, jokes, insinuations, and insults about his ear and his age had dogged Shepard in the months leading up to his launch. A New Hampshire politician wrote to President Nixon complaining that Shepard's Meniere's disease, regardless of the surgery, should have prevented him from taking other, healthier astronauts' spots in space. At a press conference, Shepard had even been asked about being the granddaddy of space but he insisted he didn't feel any historical significance. Either you cut the mustard or you don't, he said. At 47, Shepard was by far the oldest lunar explorer. Six other men would walk the moon in the next two years, in Apollos 15, 16, and 17, for a total of a dozen men between 1969 and 1972. Among the 11 others, the average age would be 39. Shepard would later admit he sometimes felt he had to work harder to prove an older man could hack it. But it turned out he could, and he was a logical choice being the only active astronaut left from the Mercury 7. Slayton was still with the program but grounded. Grissom was dead. Carpenter, Glenn, Sherall, and Cooper had all retired. Through luck, hard work, arrogant persistence, timing, and shrewd political maneuvering, Shepard had survived and had now achieved what he called the most personally satisfying thing he had ever done. As he once put it, quote, Given a disciplined self, all things are possible, end quote. Louise knew all this too. Though she threw up again and again, 
during the long night before her husband's splashdown. February 9, 1971 Back in space, Apollo 14 was rapidly approaching Earth, and it was time to begin the re-entry phase. The first task was to separate the command module from the service module. This is Apollo Control at 216 hours, 5 minutes. Uh, we're getting a bit of noise on the circuit as the crew maneuvers the spacecraft to the horizon check attitude, uh, checking attitude prior to separation of the service module. Uh, that event to occur in about 7 minutes. Apollo 14's uh, velocity has now climbed to 24,042 feet per second. And the spacecraft is now 4,393 nautical miles from Earth. 21 minutes, uh, 45 seconds now until entry uh, interface with splashdown to come at about 35 minutes, 30 seconds. Guidance officer reports the spacecraft is maneuvering now to the separation attitude. We'll stand by for that event, uh, scheduled to occur within the next minute or so. Spacecraft now in separation attitude, uh, yawed 45 degrees from the normal entry attitude. This is to minimize any chance of recontact with the service module after separation. Houston, standing by for fire alarm. Go for fire alarm. Okay, we've had separation, Houston. Roger. Al Shepard confirming that the service module has separated from the command module. Uh, they'll now reorient into the uh, entry attitude. Next, the astronauts position the command module for re-entry into the atmosphere. This is Apollo Control at 216 hours, 18 minutes. Uh, we're now reading the onboard display, uh, the numbers that the crew is reading for uh, entry velocity and uh, range to go. And their computer shows them to be traveling at a velocity of 31,955 feet per second, continuing to increase uh, 4,000 miles from uh, splashdown. Apollo 14, Apollo 14, this is Houston. Say again, you're very weak, over. Okay, okay uh, Houston, we have uh, had good separation. We're back in plane, uh, following the horizon down, over. Roger, we copy you now, loud and clear. And you're looking very good from down here, 14. Okay, uh, everything's fine up here. Apollo 14, now 3,200 miles from the splash point, uh, velocity 33,805 feet per second. This is Apollo Control, 4 minutes 45 seconds from entry, and it's grown unusually quiet here in the control center. On board the spacecraft, crew now reading. Uh, 2,800 miles until splashdown. Their velocity shows 34,465 feet per second. As the atmosphere thickened, Apollo 14 entered the blackout period and lost communications with Houston. Roger. And a thanks to the Orion group for the memento uh, they sent uh, before launch. Okay, I'll pass it on to the rest of them. I'm sure some of them are monitoring the loop. This conversation coming to us through one of the Apollo range instrumented aircraft. Our velocity now showing 36,000 uh, feet per second, 1,500 miles from splashdown. And we're 24 seconds from entry. Uh, we're now at the entry point. Uh, in about 18 seconds, we should have blackout. 
That'll last until about 3 minutes 35 seconds after entry. Yeah, Apollo 14, that's about 8 seconds to the beginning of blackout. We'll talk to you when you come out the other side, over. Okay, Bruce. It happened. And our retro officers just predicted that the target point will also be the splash point. Uh, we're coming up now on about 30 seconds until max G, maximum G-force of about 6.2 Gs. We're now at 1 minute 20 seconds after entry, about uh, coming up now on the maximum G uh, forces, uh, 6.2 Gs at this time. And we're about uh, 2 minutes from end of blackout. Our return to Earth officer has just estimated that blackout will end about one second uh, prior to the predicted time at a uh, an elapsed time of three minutes, 34 seconds after entry. That would be about 15 seconds from now. And we should have come out of blackout. We'll stand by for uh, reestablishment of communications through the Apollo range instrumented aircraft. Capcom McCandless putting in a call to the crew now. We have still not acquired signal through the Araya aircraft. Uh, Retro says our last data looked very good. Uh, should be right on the splash point. Apollo 14, Apollo 14, this is Houston through Araya 3. How do you read over? Okay, 14, now uh, you're coming in uh, loud and uh, a little bit of noise through Araya 3. How'd it go? Good show, Stu. On television, looks like a beautiful day out there in the recovery area. With capsule communication restored, we will switch to NBC News coverage of the splashdown. Now you, were, you were talking about them getting very busy now. Busy doing what? Well, they're, they're steering right now. They're trying to monitor the system. 14 Houston, uh, Samoa Rescue 1 has S-Ban walk with you over. That's the helicopter has S-Ban with you, correct? Or Rescue 1, I guess is now. I don't know. We're now seven and a half minutes from splash, uh, about two minutes, a minute and a half, rather, from drogue deploy. Now, now is the time the spacecraft quits flying, essentially, and starts dropping. Makes a lot more noise because the thrusters are firing. You're in the atmosphere more, so you're buffeting around. They're buffeting around a lot now. There's a lot of noise right in this moment. The thrusters are firing. Numbers and read by Al Shepard indicate the spacecraft guidance system targeted for a precise splashdown. Huge explosion, and then you see uh, the front, uh, your nose come off, and then you see the two drogues being powered out. And there's a delay about three or four seconds, and all of a sudden you're being slowed down. That comes the time when you lean forward in your seat to make sure that those drugs are all in one piece. Okay, Martini, copy drug deploy, and we'll turn you over to the recovery forces now. Have a happy landing. The whole object of the drugs is to slow you down slightly, but more than that, get you pointed in the right direction. Make sure the apex and the small end is facing aft, the big end is facing towards the water. 83-foot diameter uh, ring sail main chutes to come out. They should come out right now. Drogues are let go, and then the three mains come out with a huge bang again. This is the last big event of the mission right now. There it is. There you go. Incredible. That was the drogues that came out. See, the drogues came out, and there's the mains coming out. 
Goes to four down later. The three big arms and pipe parachutes, and just a moment ago you could see the entire operation. First the Grove chutes, then the smaller pilot chutes that pull these big ones out, and there they are. The main chutes that will bring the command module of Apollo 14 safely back to the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Now they're going to start dumping the, any propellants they have left. Right here, everyone rushing up toward the bow of the ship. Everyone has their binoculars and their cameras ready to record this moment. Others are cooking out there now a mile a minute. Nothing in their way. They can just enjoy the ride. They do have to check, of course, to make sure that radio beacon continues to send out the signals that keep telling those helicopters and the ship module is. There, I believe you can see that the fuel has been dumped from the command module, burned, actually. You may have noticed a small cloud or trail of smoke leaving the module. Well, that was the automatic burning of the unused fuel on board, so it won't hamper recovery operations after splashdown. Astronauts have to make sure this fuel has burned automatically, and of course, if it hadn't, they would have had to follow up by working manual controls inside that command module that would turn on the burning process. Salutations from the Hawkeye State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 321 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14 Splashdown. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 150 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to apologize for the poor quality of the audio on the NBC coverage of the splashdown. I tried to edit out most of the noisy spots, but what was left was still pretty noisy. And, of course, was not in real time. But it was actually more informative than the official com loop clip, and it was accurate. Well, everyone can breathe a sigh of relief. Apollo 14 has returned to Earth safely and soundly after a very successful mission. I cannot emphasize enough 
that after the Apollo 13 aborted mission, Apollo 14 needed to succeed to help keep the program going for the final three missions, Apollo 15, 16, and 17. We will never know what would have happened if Apollo 14 had to be aborted for like a docking problem or a crash landing on the moon or anything bad happening. But I believe it would not have been good for the program. Thankfully, we don't have to find out because Apollo 14 was a great success. Even though Shepard and Mitchell didn't make it to the rim of Cone Crater, they did get close enough to collect meaningful samples, and they did have a good haul of rocks. And, most important of all, Walter Cronkite got his color TV from the moon. (laughs) Of course, walking on the moon was Shepard's greatest triumph as it was with most moonwalkers. But Shepard, being the first American in space and the only Mercury 7 astronaut to make it to the moon, and the fact that he overcame his balance problem, and he was also the oldest astronaut, made this even more significant. But Shepard was lucky to have the opportunity to accomplish his moonwalk. You may recall that some of his other contemporaries had not been as fortunate I'll mention just a couple. Bill Lawrence, his old flying buddy from the USS Orskany, and his good friend, Deke Slayton, both had heart murmurs. The heart murmur prevented Bill Lawrence from becoming an astronaut, and instead he went to Vietnam and was shot down and captured by the North Vietnamese. The heart murmur also kept Slayton grounded until the moon program was over. But somehow, Shepard managed to emerge from his problems unscathed. He was really fortunate. Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. We had six new contributions this week, and I would like to recognize Pete P. from Georgia, who sent in another contribution this year and moved to the Apollo level. Robert W. from Pennsylvania sent in another donation and is at the ISS Mir level. Eddie M. donated at the Sputnik level and earned a satellite emoji. Ben K. from Ireland pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Nicholas W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Chris U. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our Patreon donors are back to 239, with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 427, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. If you are enjoying the content provided here and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. To do so, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All supporters are rewarded in four ways. Contributors' names are added on the donors page at the level they choose to donate, and there are also longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions, and that is explained better on the donors page. Contributors receive a thank you message from me. Contributors are recognized on the podcast. Contributors are automatically entered in the weekly giveaway. Thank you for supporting the Space Rocket History Podcast. 
for the 427 of you who have already donated for 2019. We certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor drawing. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected David Nugent. David Nugent, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 427 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My sources for this week's episode were Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, The Internet Archive, CBS News, NBC News, NASA, Flickr, and Wikipedia. All right, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 322 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.